All right, good morning, everybody. You got your Bibles. <clears throat> we'll be in Genesis chapter 15 today. <clears throat> Excuse me. The title of our lesson is Abram's Faith. <clears throat> Abram's Faith. Genesis 15. We'll cover the whole chapter. Uh, I don't know how many of y'all... I, I, um, I have a website that I go to every day. It's called ChristianHeadlines.com. Uh, if, you're, if you want to keep up with kind of what's going on in the, in the, in the, the Christian world... <clears throat> um, you kind of go to that. Well, anyway, a couple weeks ago, something popped up on there, and Andy Stanley, <clears throat> how many of y'all know who Andy Stanley is, right? Uh, I think it's North Point Community Church in Atlanta. He did a sermon series, and in this sermon series, he, he basically came out and said that, that Christians today need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament and uh, basically set the Old Testament aside and focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that especially when we share the gospel or we, or we talk to people, just kind of unhitch ourselves from the, from the Old Testament. This is his quote. <clears throat> he said, Jesus' new covenant, his covenant with the nations, his covenant with us, his, his covenant with you, can stand on its own two nail-scarred feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures. Now, you may say, well, why would he do this? Well, he's concerned that... Many people are turned away from the gospel and turned away from Christianity because of certain passages in, in the Old uh, Testament. Uh, there, for example, there's places in the Old Testament where uh, it seems to condone slavery. There's places in the Old Testament where it seems to condone genocide, where God says, go into that city and kill them all, right? And, and those are troublesome passages. That bothers people and and he's like I said he's afraid that people are being turned away from Christ and Christianity because of some of these passages this is what another quote from him <clears throat> he said and, and what he's talking about here is unhitching from the Old Testament he said this is liberating for men and women who are drawn to the simple message that God loves you and it's liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to embrace the dynamic the worldview and the value systems depicted in the story of ancient Israel. So what he's saying is there's a lot of people come to the Bible and they open the Old Testament and they just can't understand it. They don't understand how can the God of the Old Testament be the same God of the New Testament, right? And that is tricky sometimes. And and, and, and so he, he's encouraging people to unhitch. Now, let me say this first of all. There is no doubt that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central tenet of Christianity. First uh, Corinthians 15 says, without it, we have no, no hope. Romans 10, 9 says, without the resurrection, you cannot be saved. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believing in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You cannot be saved without the resurrection, believing in the resurrection. So that is absolutely a central tenet and should be obviously a focus and, and in fact, I consider it a, a proven fact. There's no doubt in my mind the resurrection happened. But here's the thing. It isn't enough just to know the fact of the resurrection. It's not enough to know the fact that Jesus rose from the dead because that, ne that doesn't answer all the questions. For example, why did he have to die? You know, if you go to somebody and start talking about Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead, well, that's, why did he have to die? Well, you saying I'm a sinner? I'm as good as anybody else, right? There's all these questions. And see, to answer those questions, guess what? You need the Old Testament. <clears throat> see, Jesus had to die because, as, as we know, studying Genesis, 
when Adam rebelled, every single person born after him is born into rebellion against God. You are not born a God follower. You are born into this world a rebel. You are born into this world an enemy of God. Every precious little baby that so, looks so innocent, they already got it in them. And, it's, and as they grow, they just rebel more and more and more. See, every person, person is born on this planet is now born with a sin nature because of what Adam did in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. There's an interesting thing. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter walks outside and he preaches a sermon. And he, and he begins a sermon with Christ crucified. And on that day, thousands are saved. And, and, and one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is the crowd he's preaching to are Jews. And they understand things like redemption and atonement. And, and you can call him the Lamb of God and they know what you're talking about, right? See, all the Old Testament, they got all that in them. So they have the background to understand the message of the cross. But in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to the Areopagus in Athens and he preaches to a bunch of Greeks and he preaches Christ crucified and raised from the dead and, and, and it, just, bleh, it just falls flat. Why? Because they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't know who God was. They, they surely didn't understand why anybody would have to die. Are you with me? <clears throat> See, the Old Testament, what I'm trying to tell you here is the Old Testament matters. And it matters big. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law, which is the Old Testament, was our tutor or our teacher to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. We've said this over and over. One of the things the Old Testament teaches you is, is you can't do it by works. You can't follow the law. You can't be good enough to be accepted by Christ. John 5.39, this is the words of Jesus. He says, you search the scriptures. And by the way, what scriptures is he talking about? When Jesus is on the earth, there is no New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says, you search the Old Testament because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about who? Me. So the Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's the story of God's plan of, of redemption. It's the revelation of that. So I don't think, I think Andy Stanley is, is, is terribly wrong. I don't think we can unhitch from the Old Testament books, especially Genesis. And as I said, they're important because without them, you've only got half the story. You, you've only got half the story. And in fact, what we're going to see is in the Old Testament, a lot of people look at the, the Old Testament, New Testament, and somehow God has changed. God hasn't changed at all. He, he, in the Old Testament, the, the way people were saved in the Old Testament is the exact same way they're saved in the New Testament. And we're going to see that today. In, in Genesis 15. Today we come to one of the high water marks uh, when it comes to Old Testament revelation. There are times in the Old Testament that God is just, they're telling a story, but then there's times when they'll just, they'll hit you with a piece of theology or revelation. You're like, whoa. And today is, is one of these days. Now, up to this point, we've gone, we started in, in Genesis 12 with the story of Abram. And as we said, what Genesis 1 through 11 covers like, what, 2,000 years of history? And Genesis 12 through 26 covers 175 years of history. So there's something about this man that is hugely uh, important. So we started in chapter 12 with Abram, and up to this point, he's had this general faith in God, right? Uh, it, 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 his faith in God rested primarily 
upon the call that we saw in Genesis chapter 12. So if I, and you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Abram's just living in a, a city called Ur, minding his own business, and God comes to him and says this, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is a call of God, but it's very, it's pretty vague. Okay, for example, uh, he says, go to a land I'll show you. He doesn't, says, this is, he doesn't tell him where it is. He said, I'll show you after you leave. So he has to get up and leave, going somewhere. He don't even know where he's going. He says, I'll make of you a great nation. Okay, well, how? God doesn't say how, does he? He says, I will bless you and make your name great. Okay, how are you going to make my name great? Nobody knows. This is a very general call. All right, so, so, so Abram's faith up to this point has been very general. But here's the thing. God is not interested in you and I having a general faith. That does not interest him at all. So what he does in our life, if, you, if you've got a general faith, is he will bring you to crisis points. He will bring you through tests. And these tests and these crisis points are designed to bring you from a general faith to a specific faith, from an abstract faith to a very concrete faith. And that is the case with Abram. Remember, he gets this general call, right? And he has to make a decision. Do I leave this town I grew up in, my family, my kindred, or do I stay where I am? He gets to Haran. He stays there. His dad dies, right? And he has to make a decision. All right. Do I stay here where I've been for a few years and I'm comfortable, or do I keep on the journey? And he leaves. He, he gets down to Canaan, and he has to deal with a famine. God's brought me all the way to this promised land, and now there's no food. Right? He goes to Egypt, and he has to deal with the issue with his wife, Sarah. Hey, just tell them you're my sister so they don't kill me. Right? He, he comes back up, and he has to separate from Lot. Lot gets captured uh, by those kings from Mesopotamia, and he has to figure out, okay, do I go after him? Do I... Are you with me? These are all little tests, tests of faith, all little crisis points to see designed to bring Abram from a very general faith to a very uh, specific faith. Now, here in chapter 15, he's going to come up to another crisis point, and this one is going to be a biggie. Let's start reading in verse 1, Genesis 15, 1. It says, after these things, this is after, remember, Lot got captured. Abram goes after the kings. He, he, come, he divides his forces. He makes war on them. He defeats them, and he comes back, and he meets the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. That was all in chapter 14. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And the first two words to Abram are, fear not. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, I don't know about you, but I, those are two words I would not have expected God to say. After all, Abram has just won this great victory, right? He's, he's defeated the, some of the strongest kingdoms around, the kingdoms from the east. He is, I'm sure everybody knows who he is by now. I'm sure he's recognized. He's more than likely feared because you don't mess with Abraham. So what is there for him to be afraid of? He's afraid of something. Because God's first words out of God's mouth, don't, don't be afraid. Now, some people will say when you read commentaries, well, maybe he was afraid that those kings were going to come back and attack him and all that, but I don't think that's what he was afraid of at all. In fact, I think Abram's afraid of one thing. He's got one fear in his life, 
And, and he's going to tell us what it is in the next verse, verse 2 through 3. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? That's all he wore. Listen, he had one fear in his life, and that was that he would not have an heir. I've had all this success. I've got all this silver and gold and animals and servants, and I, I don't have a son to pass it on to. He says, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. In the ancient world, there was a, a, a practice they had. If a, if a family, a couple, did not have uh, any children, especially any sons, there was a certain thing that they did. What they would do is they would take, um, they would adopt one of the servants that was born into the house. So they would just choose one of them and, and, and they would adopt that. And then that, that son, that adopted son, would take care of them in their old age. Remember, back in those days, there's no nursing homes, there's no welfare system, there's no Medicare or Medicaid. Children are important <laughs> for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is they're going to take care of you. When you get old, <clears throat> I mean that's important. So you had to make you had to make plans for that, okay? If you didn't have kids, and so they would do that, and so this this adopted servant would become their son or their heir. He would take care of them when they're old age, and then when they died, he would inherit the property and the house and all of that. So evidently, don't miss this. Abram has already gone down this path. Are you with me? He he's already picked somebody out. He's already chosen this guy by the name of Eliezer of Damascus because he don't have any kids. So he's already made plans not to have any children. In fact, that tells us a couple of things. Number one, and Abram, he's got this, he's a great man of faith, but he's also got a real flaw in his character. And one of the problems he has, he's always trying to work things out on his own. You remember when, with Sarah, when he goes down to Egypt, he's like, man, you're a good-looking woman if I go down there, they're going to kill me and take you. Tell them you're my sister. He's always trying to work things out. By the way, this is something he'll struggle with his entire life. And you can see here, he's already started working. I'm, I'm going to choose Eliezer. He's already kind of come up with his own heir because God hadn't given him one. It also tells us, I believe, that Abram is at a low point in his faith. He obviously wants a son badly. And he's already made arrangements in case that doesn't happen. In other words, I think that's what he's afraid of. That's his biggest fear right now in his life. That he, and, and I think it weighs on his, on his mind. Look at verse 4 and 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, and if you're able to number them, Look toward heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, you remember when he first called Abram, it was very general. I'm going to make you a great nation. Okay, but how? Right? I'm, I'm going to give you a great name. All right, well, it's very general. This is a very specific promise. I'm going to give you your own flesh and blood son. Now, here's the thing. This is something Abraham cannot make happen. Are you with me? This is completely out of his control. Trust me, he's been trying for years to have a child, and they can't do it. It is going to take a work of God and a work of God alone to bring this miracle to pass. It is a very specific promise. 
By the way, this is the first time... Let me back up here. Now, one more. So, he says, I'm going to give you a son. We know it's going to take... It's a very specific promise. It's going to take a work of God and God alone to do it. And with that, in the very next verse, we get an amazing Old Testament revelation. Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. In New Testament language, we would say, Abram was saved. Are you with me? When he says he counted it to him as righteousness, he's basically saying Abram was saved, And if we, if we spoke through it in New Testament language. This is the very first time, by the way, the word believe is ever used in the Bible. It's also the very first time that Abram has said to be justified by faith. So here's my question. Is Moses saying, by, by the way, Moses is the one who wrote Genesis. Is Moses saying that this is the very first time that Abram has ever believed God? Is that what he's saying? Well, we, we know that's not true, right? Because, as we said, he's believed for a long time. Ever since he received that general call years ago in Ur, he believed. Hebrews 11.8 backs us up on that. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. See, he's believed for a long time. This isn't the first time he's believed. See, his faith didn't begin here. So here's my question. Why did Moses wait until now to tell us that Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness? Now, that's a good question. Why did he wait till now to say that? Well, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. I think Martin Luther gives us the best answer in his commentary. He said this, Justification by faith is first indicated in the Scriptures in a connection where the Savior is definitely involved in order that none might venture to disassociate justification from Him. Let me tell you what he's saying. If Moses had made that statement way back when, when Abraham had left Ur, are you with me? If he had made it way back then, it would have inferred that a general faith is enough to be saved. Let me say that again. If Moses had made that statement way back when Abram left Ur, on the, when he got this general call, that would have inferred that a general faith is enough to be saved. But Moses didn't do that. You see, he waits until Abram's faith is not a general faith anymore. It's a very specific faith. He waits until Abram is asked to believe in a coming son. Because you see, when Abraham believes in a coming son... He believes that that son is going to have a son, and that son is going to have a son, and one day down the line, Jesus Christ is going to be born from his line. So he, Moses waits to say he's justified by faith until there's a promise that some have got a connection to Jesus Christ. Everybody with me? Now you may say, now wait just a second, Derek. <clears throat> Abram doesn't know anything about Jesus. That doesn't say anything about Jesus. You're right, it doesn't. And I don't know what all he understood and what all he didn't. I do know this. Jesus himself said in John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus himself said that Abraham looked down the line and knew there was a Redeemer coming, and he put his trust in that Redeemer. On three things about Abram's faith, I want to point out very quickly. Number one, it's a personal faith. Abram doesn't merely believe about God. He believes in God. 
There's a lot of people out there today, go out to any survey and ask people, do you believe in God? <clears throat> 85, 90% of the people say, yeah, I believe, I believe in God. But see, they, they believe about God, but they don't know Him. They don't believe in Him. See, Abram doesn't just... Boy, this is so important right here. Abram doesn't just profess a belief. He possesses a belief. You see the difference? There's a lot of people out there profess. There's no very few that actually possess it. And Abram possessed a belief in God. And the Bible tells us he was genuinely reborn by faith. Number two, it's a propositional faith. While Abraham believed in the person of God... His faith was based on the promises of God. You see, there's a lot of people out there today that believe in a, in a God of their own definition. But see, Abram believed in a God of revelation. See, you can sit out there and make up your mind, this is who God is, or you can just believe the Bible when God says, this is who I am. That's your choice. See, that's what Abraham... Abraham believed in the God of the Bible. Number three, it's a saving faith. Abram is declared righteous by God because he put his faith in the one who was righteous. You see, the righteousness of Christ imputed to Abram because of his God-given faith saved him just like it saves you and I. See, the lesson here in Genesis 15, 6 is that God's way of saving men is not new after Jesus. It's the same in the Old Testament is the same as it was in the New People in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward and believing that one day God would bring a Savior and a Redeemer. We're saved by looking back to the one who's already come. I've said it before, in the Old Testament, God saved them on credit. He saves us on debit. You see, if you look at, if you look at the blood of Jesus as a deposit in the bank, they look forward to one day and God credited it to them because they believed. We look back, that blood is already there. We, we, we take it on debit because it's already been deposited. But God doesn't change how he saves anybody. It's always grace through faith. Always grace through faith. There's a great story in, that kind of illustrates this in Acts chapter 10 in the New Testament. Um, I, I won't read the whole thing, but it tells us in Acts chapter 10 about a man named uh, Cornelius. And I want you to read this description of this man. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a devout man. It means he was a religious man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, let me tell you, he's better than I am. That's a better man than I am. He was, if, if you've ever talked about, well, that man deserves to go to heaven, it would have been that man. He's a devout man. He gave alms generously. He prays continuously, but he wasn't saved. In fact, God had to give a vision to Peter, and he told Peter, get up and go to Caesarea and go to that man's house and tell him this. And this is what Peter said when he, got, when he, preached, to, when he preached to Cornelius and his family. He says to him, talking about Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Cornelius, you're a devout man, you're a, you're a generous man, you're a praying man, but you're not going to be saved till you put your faith. You've got a general faith. You need a specific faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and you won't be saved until that happens. See, nothing has changed. I don't care how religious you are, how all, none of that matters. God wants you, you've got to have a specific faith in Jesus Christ. 
and you receive forgiveness of sins through his name. So while Abram is saved in the one who would come, we are saved by faith in the one who has come. As I said, we're saved on credit. He, he was saved on credit. We're saved on debit. That's the only difference. So God has now dealt with Abram's greatest fear in his, his need for reassurance. Yes, I'm going to give you a son. All these promises are going to come to pass through your own flesh and blood. Now he has to go on and strengthen Abram's faith concerning the land that he would possess. Look at verse 7 and 8. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord, how am I going to know that I shall possess it? Now, Abram's question doesn't seem to reflect any unbelief because God doesn't rebuke him. In fact, he, he answers Abram by confirming his promise with a covenant. Now, in that day, think about two men get together. And one of them says, I'm going to do this for you. And the other man would say, okay, well, how am I going to know that? How do, we, how do I know you're going to do it? And the other man would say, well, let's, let's enter into an agreement. Today, we'd say what? Let's sign a contract, right? Everybody with me? That, that's all Abram is saying. He's not saying, God, you, how you got, no, he's saying, what's the sign? Just like two men talking, how, what's the sign that you're going to do this for me? And so God says, okay, I'll enter into a covenant with you. Verses 9 through 11. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, he cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, keep in mind, in the ancient world back then, they didn't have lawyers. Amen? No, I'd have to figure somebody said that. So they didn't have any lawyers. They didn't have contracts. They didn't have all that court systems and all that kind of stuff. But they had ways that they would enter into uh, a covenant. Okay? And, through, and, and normally it was some kind of ceremony. Okay? Now, for some reason, and we don't really know where this comes from, what the origin of this is, but they had a ceremony. It was a man-made ceremony. This was, this was fairly common in the ancient world that you would seal a covenant by dividing or cutting animals in half. In fact, the technical Hebrew term for covenant, berit, literally means to cut a covenant. It literally means to cut a covenant. So this animal was cut in two, and the, and the two parties would pass between the, the two an, the animals. Sometimes it would be one animal, sometimes it would be multiple animals. Now, again, we don't know the origin of this. Okay, somebody said, a couple of commentaries said this, that perhaps as you walk through the animals, you're acknowledging that the fate of those animals should be your fate if you don't keep this, if you break this, right? So as you're walking through it, you're saying, all right, if I break this covenant, that's what should happen to me. So maybe that's where it comes from. We don't know, okay? We, we really don't know. But whatever the origin of this man-made ceremony, I want you to understand this. God graciously comes down and participates. He adapts himself to Abram's culture. Abram says, what are you gonna, how, how do I know you're going to do this? What are you going to show me? And he says, I'll come down and participate in your ceremony. See, this isn't a God ceremony. God doesn't have to come up with this. But he actually comes down with Abram and participates in a man-made ceremony ceremony, and, and that's just grace for him to do that. Look at verse 12. 
And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now, we are, we're not given much information. This is a, a, a part here. It says this dreadful, dark darkness comes on. I don't really know what that is. I don't know why it, it, it would have been terror. It could have been just the presence of the Lord is coming down. And maybe that scared him to death. We know in the Bible that happens when you really see God or you get close to God. It ain't a good feeling. It's a, it's a woe is me feeling, right? We see that all throughout the Bible. It could also be that in this sleep, God showed Abraham what's going to happen to his people, his descendants, his family over the next 400 years. As we all know, Abram's descendants are going to be many, but they're going to be taken into slavery in Egypt, and they're going to be treated terribly for 400 years before they get to come back to the land. This could be what happened, because look at the next verse. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. You'll notice here God never mentions Egypt. By the way, Abram just came out of Egypt. He knows exactly. It's right over there. But God never says it's going to be Egypt because that could have... You know, if, sometimes we always think we want to know things, but sometimes when you know things, you do things you shouldn't do. Are you with me? Remember, Abraham's already got a character flaw. He's always trying to work things out on his own, right? So if he'd have known that was Egypt, who knows what he would have done. So God doesn't say it's Egypt. He doesn't tell him... Where they're, where they're going. And I want you to also keep in mind, remember, Moses writes Genesis right before they've, they've come out of Egypt. For, this is 400 years later. They've come out of Egypt. Moses writes Genesis right before they're going in to take the promised land. So the people that are reading Genesis 15 for the very first time are the people of this prophecy. They're, they're reading it for the first... That's us. 400 years have gone by, and you're, he's bringing us back, and everything, he, it, it, it's happened. we got all this stuff they sent us away with. So these are the people that are reading this for the first time are the people of this prophecy. Now, real quickly, why 400 years? He says they're going to go down there, they're going to be down there for 400 years, and I'll bring them back. There's two reasons, and, and God tells us exactly what those two reasons are. As for you, verses 15 and 16, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is an amazing thing to me. First of all, the children of Abraham would not be numerous, numerous enough to take the land. He can't do it right then, right? He don't even have a son yet. So he's got to have a son. Isaac's got to grow up. Isaac's got to have children. They've got to have children. It's going to take a while. And so it literally is going to take four generations for them to have enough people that they can actually go in and defeat uh, cities like Jericho, right? So, so that's, that's number one. It's going to take some time, okay? Number two, though, God makes this amazing statement. He says the sin of the people in the land is not yet complete. It's not yet full. In other words, they haven't yet reached the point of no return. Now, that's an amazing statement to me, that they're, they're in that. They don't care about God. They don't want to know anything about God. They're, they're, they're sacrificing their children. I mean, they're, they're, these people are crazy. But God says that it, they have not yet reached the point of no return. I'm going to give them 400 years, 
400 years to repent, 400 years to turn to me, 400 years to stop doing what they're... God is just merciful. It's, it's just pure mercy for him to, to do that. Now, one more thing. We live in a day and age... It's an amazing, I told you one time, I can't remember the king's name, but there was a king who, who went to one of his uh, advisors and he says, I want you to give me proof that the Bible is true. And, and, and the guy says, the proof is the Jews. That's the proof. I mean, think about this. We're reading things that were written 4,000 years ago. And yet, go turn on your news, go open your newspaper, and who are we still talking about? That is insane to me. That is just crazy. And they're in the land. I mean, just think about what, what times that we live in. And we, there's a debate on, on the news, and there's debate everywhere about who owns the land. Is it the Palestinians? Is it the Arabs? Is it the, is it the, the Jews? And in this passage is a very important principle that governs the possession of, of the land of Canaan. And that is this, God owns that land. God owns that land. Leviticus 25, 35, God says this, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. He's saying as you go down from generation to generation to generation, don't sell it. Don't give it away, because that land belongs to me. You are strangers and sojourners with me. See, God's saying this is my land, and I'm going to let it out to people who will live righteous. See, the fact is... He dis, 400 years later, he displaces the Canaanites, gets rid of them, so that the Jews can move in. But let me tell you, when the Jews forgot God and they started practicing the sins of the Canaanites, guess what he did to them? He kicked them out. You gone. See, it's, it's, it doesn't, it's, it's his land. So in light of the debate today that we talk about over and over, who's, let's not forget, it's God's land. And he's going to let the Jews live there as long as they look to him, but if they turn from him and start practicing wickedness like they did before, he'll put them out again because it's his land. Verse 17, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is God, right? Remember, if two men was in this ceremony, they would walk down together through the cut pieces of the animals, basically saying, if I don't keep this contract, let what happened to those animals happen to me. This time, God comes down. By the way, Abraham's dead asleep, right? God comes down, and he walks through all by himself. A couple of things about this. Smoke and fire, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Why two things? Why fire and smoke? Well, if you go through the Old Testament, you always see God in fire and smoke, fire and smoke, fire and smoke. Remember, he led the Israelite children, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day, right? Fire and smoke. When they, Moses goes up on the, um, uh, on the uh, uh, mountain, what happened? Fire and smoke, fire and smoke, right? What's going on with this? Well, in one way, they point to the double aspect of God's nature. The smoke shows us that he can never be completely known. The fire shows us he can never be completely hid. I always like that. You, he, he is, he's not just fire. He's not just smoke. He, he's, the fire shows us he's never completely hid. The smoke shows us he can never be completely known. But it also speaks of another twofold aspect of his nature. See, to those that love him, he's fire, he's light. To those that don't love him, he's darkness. 
right? See, two people can look at God and see one can see fire and light and love, and the other one can look at God and see smoke and fog and terror and darkness. See, it's all about the same joy. God can be joy to one and dread to others. Verses 18 to 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. And try saying that real fast three times. One thing, going back real quick, notice that only God walked through the animals because this, this covenant is a covenant made by one. There, Abraham has nothing to do with it. He's saying, I'm going to give you this land, and this is a symbol of my covenant. Abraham, there's nothing to do with you. You, you can't make it happen. You can't make it not happen. It's, a, it's, a, it's what's called a unilateral coverage. It's a covenant of one. And then he says, this is the land that I'm going to give you. Now, put a map up there just so you know. God has promised the land from the Nile River in the south to the Euphrates in the north. The Nile is down in Egypt, the Euphrates up in northern Syria. That is the limits of the land. And you should notice something there. They're not where they should be, right? They're in that little place of Israel. But God has promised them land south of that, and God has promised them land uh, north of that as well. You see, the fact is, Abram's descendants to this day have never fully claimed and conquered the land that God promised them. They got a part of it but they don't have all of it. Now, if you go back and read the Old Testament, under David and Solomon, they came really close, but it never happened. But let me tell you, it's going to. It's going to happen. F.B. Meyer uh, was a Bible scholar. He died in 1927. He said this, Somehow the descendants of Abraham shall... Now, by the way, when he wrote this, Jews are scattered all over the planet, right? The British are, are ensconced in Israel, the Palestinians, the Arabs are, are all there. Jews are everywhere. And F.B. Meyer, of course, we all know in 1949, Israel became a state, right? F.B. Meyer died 20 years before that. And he said this, Somehow the descendants of Abraham shall yet inherit their own land, secured to them by the covenant of God. Those rivers shall yet form their boundary lines, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You see, the fact is, F.B. Meyer never even saw what we see today. But he knows what we, he knew what we know because verse 18 makes it abundantly clear it is a done deal. God said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So it's, it's going to happen. I want to close real quickly with an application for you and I. The bottom line for Abram was that God's promises to him are now much more specific. He's going to have a son. Through that son, he's going to have offspring like the dust of the ground, like the, like the stars in the sky. They're going, to, they're going to suffer for 400 years, but then they're going to come back to the land and, and possess that land. Now, here's the thing about Abram. He would never see them possess that land in his lifetime. He'll never see it. But that does not mean that he came out on the short end of the stick. Remember what, G what God said in Genesis 15.1, Don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your great reward. I am your great reward. Not the land, not a big house, not a bunch of servants, not a bunch of money. Me. Me. See, this is what set Abraham apart to me. That while he waited, he could see those blessings out in the future for his descendants. But while he waited, he was content 
with the presence of God. He, by, remember we said it before, he, was a man, he never built a house. As far as we know, he never lived in a city. The man lived in a tent his whole life because he saw that land, I'm just a stranger, I'm just passing through. My reward is in heaven. My reward is on the other side. And, and beyond that, his great reward was God himself. And that, as I said, that's what set Abraham apart so much, so much to so that even today we would call him the father of the faith because he set that example for us. Psalm 73, 26 said this, My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Listen, you want an application? The ultimate good in this life is not stuff. It's not houses and cars and and family and, and all of that. Those are all good things, nothing wrong with them. But the ultimate good in life is not stuff. And the ultimate good in life is also not freedom from pain or suffering or poverty. The ultimate good in life is knowing God. That is the ultimate good in life. And Abraham captured that and possessed that like no one else before him. He endured everything that he would endure without seeing the fulfillment of God's promises in his lifetime, but yet he believed because he was assured. And you and I need to learn from that. God's timetable. Listen, turn on the news. What a mess. What an absolute mess we live in. I heard a song the other day. Uh, Somebody said, I would have thought by now you'd have come back and put it all right. But it just seems to get worse, doesn't it? See, his timetable is not our timetable, but his timetable is always perfect, right? And it may seem to us that the wicked are prospering. It may seem to us that God's people are, are suffering. But let me tell you, God will make it right in the end. God will make it right. I, I was watching something the other day, and somebody got away with something, and, and I forget what it was, and they were, people were lamenting, there's no justice. There's no ju- Oh, there's justice. Trust me, there's justice. There's real justice. And it's coming. It's coming. because God. And how do we know? Because he said it was so. See, that's what Abraham could look way out and say, I believe it. I believe him. I know him, and he would not lie. I believe it's coming. You and I have to live our lives the exact same way. We can't fuss and fret and up and down with every little injustice or every little slide or every little... I mean, that's a crazy way to live our life. Just keep your eyes on the prize. Get your eyes off the dirt and pick them up and look at him. I'm headed to him. That's where I'm going. See, God is going to make it right in the end. He has made us promises that cannot fail. So trust him. Here, the bottom line is God wins. God wins. God wins. Let's remember that. Let's pray. Father.